Hey, Will, what's your favorite home automation thing? You, you want like the serious answer or the fun answer? Uh, serious than fun. Okay. I love that my office, since I'm basically the only person that uses my office, the lights are all completely automated. Like when I'm on a conference call, they come up to conference call brightness. When I'm not, they're like nice and chill and dim. So it's kind of like a, you know, a dank cave. When I fire up the stream, it's like the surface of the sun in here. And it all happens automatically thanks to my home assistant. Hey, that, you know, that sounds like a pleasantly functional and mundane answer, a serious answer. Now, what's the fun one? Yeah, I never have to think about it. The fun one, and this came from Twitch streamer and a Twitter user, Rolex, a few weeks ago. They had tweeted that if you had set a reminder at 8.59 on Saturday night to play Piano Man, uh-huh. at the moment oh boy. 9 o'clock p.m. hits, it says it's 9 o'clock on a Saturday, the lyric plays, and it makes me smile every single week. <laughs> hey, man, it's the little things that get you through. Like literally our whole house stops at nine o'clock on Saturday night, has like a little bit of a piano man party. And I'm going to tell you, there are worse ways you can live your life. Every family needs its rituals, you know? It's nine o'clock on a Saturday, Brad. Welcome to the Fosspod. I'm Will. I'm Brad. Hey, Brad. This week's episode of the Fosspod is brought to you by Google Open Source. They bring all the value of open source to Google and all the resources of Google to open source. You can find out more at opensource.google. You've gotten so good at saying that tagline that you might be able to automate it at this point. I feel like automating it takes a little bit of the joy de vivre out of the experience. So you might be right, but what if you could like set up an automation that could detect the file name of this recording and then just like drop it right in there? I do like automating things. Mm-hmm. You know, it's nine o'clock on a Saturday, the lights in the office. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm really, really excited about our guest this week and the project that we're talking about. We have Paul Schautzen, who is the maintainer of one of our favorite open source projects, Home Assistant. Also one of the biggest, apparently. I had no idea, but it's like top 10 most active on GitHub stuff. It's a big one. So Home Assistant has been around for a little bit under 10 years now, and it is one of the largest in scope open source projects that I'm aware of. The goal is to bring all home automation together under one one open umbrella where users control their own data, which is important in this space because, you know, like you don't want Google or Amazon or whoever to know when your lights are turning on and off necessarily. And also they support an incredible array of hardware. So This is a space that's been around, like the home automation stuff has been going for 20 years in some cases, 25 years, starting with X10 a long time ago. And they support an enormous array of hardware, like more hardware than anybody else supports at this point, I think is safe to say. Yeah, I mean, to me, this is like maybe the ultimate expression of the power of open source, because like, think about how you accrue smart devices, right? It's like, oh, your aunt gave you a a three pack of like one kind of smart plug and you got some others on a sale and like, then you ended up with this one speaker yeah, and you know, like, and every corporation has its own walled garden. Nothing wants to talk to each other. Enter Home Assistant. You know, like because of this sprawling project, you can take all these disparate devices that aren't made to work together and make them work together. It's like kind of remarkable. And more importantly than that, it also takes that setup once you have it and exports it into the other ecosystem. So, for example, if you want to use your smart home stuff with Siri or with Google Assistant or with Alexa. You can connect it to those devices and they'll just see one device that brings all of this stuff in and it all just kind of works. It's kind of amazing. Do you know how many non-HomeKit devices I have in my Apple Home? I, I feel so rebellious. 
Is it all of them? Uh, not all, but some. Okay. My HomeKit device has no HomeKit devices. Mm. Hey, man. There's a couple of things that Apple sold me, but other than that, it's all free range. Hey, that's, that's the beauty. You can do it through the, the walled app, do it through a web page running off of Raspberry Pi. It's all up to you. Well, and on top of supporting existing devices that are available right now, they also support legacy devices that even the manufacturers have abandoned in some cases. Sometimes the manufacturers don't even exist anymore. So they're keeping hardware out of landfills. They're letting you get more functionality out of the stuff you already own. And they support almost everything. Like, it's an incredible array of devices. You can find out more about the project at home-assistant.io. It's an incredible thing. And if you want to learn more, well, I guess we can start the interview. How did you get started? And did you ever imagine in 2012, 2013 that you were going to end up doing this full time as like your career? Right. Uh, yeah, so I got started because uh, Philips U was released and I bought a Philips U. And then I was doing a bunch of Python at work and I realized the Philips U had a local API. So I wanted to control that. And so then, you know, I, I integrated that API and then I realized I have all this power to control this Philips U, but I, you know, what do I do with it? And so then I realized, you know what, I'm going to have it turn on the lights when the sun are setting. So I integrate the sun when the sun was setting, turn on the lights. Then I realized, ah, now the lights are being turned on when we're not at home. We need presence detection. So I added presence detection. And then I realized, well, now the light is being turned on. The sunset, it's too late. It's already too dark in the home, especially like in the winter and the angle of the sun. So we need to look at the angle of the sun or we need to have like an hourly offset. And so then I started like adding that and then kind of, Around that time, Google came out with their material design. So I implemented there and together with like an open source framework. So I added that to the front end and then it got on Hacker News. And then, you know, there got more attention and kind of like started circling. And now we're here. (laughs) (laughs) Very, very short, brief summary. But no, I never had expected me to be like doing this full time. Like I'm. You know, when I look back at like what I used to do at my day job is that I used to be the front end person. So I would build like JavaScript stuff and to basically build a whole Python application that and then, you know, having its own operating system now and all that stuff that goes around it. Like I had not anticipated that, you know, to be my day job. Like at what point did you look up and we were like, oh, maybe this could be my day. Was it after you launched the Nabucasa stuff or was it was it prior to that? No, I was prior to that, um, but the problem was that I was uh, on a visa in the United States, so I couldn't like start my own company. So really, the the second I got my green card is when <laughs> we launched Nabucasa. <laughs> um, but it's um, no, but I think that you know it's it's difficult to be like, is this profitable enough? Are people interested enough? And I think we were maybe even because I had to wait because of my green card, we timed it better. Um, I think if we came too early, then a home system would have still been too difficult to use. Um, I was also very lucky that like, I met Pascal Visely. He is the creator of the operating system. Mm-hmm. So without the operating system, it wouldn't have been accessible enough to begin with. Because then you didn't even have the Raspberry Pi, but you needed to like, you know, install virtual environments, Python, all that stuff. It was definitely a lot in the old days. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned a moment, and it's something we've talked about kind of a lot too, but there's something really visceral and that's very satisfying when you're learning to program about doing something in the real world. It's something that Arduino people talk about a lot. Moving a servo or lighting a light or turning on a fan or whatever it is, it feels so much better than the thing that I did when I took CS100 in college, which is, hey, we're going to build a CD library. (laughs) Do do you think that home automation stuff like is a gateway into programming for, for people who maybe are less interested or... 
I, I think it can definitely be because like, you know, people, it's kind of easy now to get like a light control through Home Assistant and then you start writing automations. And then I think that the, the next step is people need to realize that writing automations is actually programming. Right, like it's not like a full featured program, but like, hey, you're writing if conditions, you're doing like triggers or these kind of things. I definitely, we're trying to make this also more accessible, both from like a programming side, but also on like the creating your own devices side. So we actually acquired another open source project called ESP Home two years ago, which allows you to connect sensors to microcontrollers like ESP devices, and those uh, sensors will then show up in Home Assistant without any programming necessary. So that way you can really focus on creating electronics instead of like knowing how to program an event loop for your microcontroller to connect to Wi-Fi and send the data out. And so we, we've been playing with that. We sometimes hear feedback or people are using Home Assistant or ESP Home in like, you know, classrooms and stuff to kind of help people learn like what is possible. So last I checked, Home Assistant, I think, was still in the top 10 most active projects on GitHub. So you're not exactly hurting <laughs> for contributors. But is there any one area of the software that you would like to see get more development attention or any new features that aren't there yet that you would love to see more contributors work on? I mean, I, I think the biggest challenge we have is just reviewing code, right? Like we get so many contributions. And even though we say no protocol information to Home Assistant, use Python libraries for that. And like, you know, those are people are building those outside of the Home Assistant review loop, we still just get so many pull requests open. Like I think it, I think right now we have like 750 and it's kind of has been stable over that time. We, I think we merge around like 10 or 20 a day. Some are smaller contributions, some are bigger contributions. It's very difficult to say. I think, you know, just finding bugs in the stuff you use yourself is usually the best thing for contributors because that's, something you can check right away, you can benefit from it, and it will definitely, you know, get your attention and your interest, I think. And then from there on, eventually, maybe you'll contribute to core. But there's not many people that make that step because when it comes to open source, a lot of people like to contribute something that they benefit from directly. And building something on core, making a faster database, making these kind of things are, you benefit from it indirectly, but you generally know how to configure your systems that you can avoid those problems instead of like having to solve those problems. Fantastic. What keeps you up at night worrying and what are you excited about going forward? It's kind of the duality of the leader of a project like this, it seems like. So what we realized with, you know, with Nabucasa, we now have people working full-time on Home Assistant and then, you know, we acquired ESP Home and so we put a full-time person on that. We, you know, we use Z-Wave.js for our Z-Wave driver and now we actually hired the founder of Z-Wave.js also working full-time on making sure that Z-Wave is the best it can be. And what we realized is that most open source projects do not have funded resources, right? And so for us... Our power is not just that home assistant, which is the brains in your home, but it's all those devices in your home need to work together. And like the projects you create for fun needs to also come in. And so we realized that we need to create tools that allow other open source projects to also increase their onboarding experience. Because the onboarding is the thing that is the biggest challenge. Um, you know, there's a lot of... For, for developers. No, for users oh. to actually use developers' creations. So for example, there's a very cool firmware to control LED strips. But the instructions on that website used to be, well, download this Python application so you can flash it onto, an, you know, the whole thing with Home Assistant Yellow, but then now for microcontrollers. And so, you know, we started creating, we created like uh, ESP Web Tools, which is a project to help people install firmware on their devices. We created Improv Wi-Fi, which is a 
protocol for Bluetooth and serial to get device onto the network. You know, kind of the things I also earlier explained how what Matter does. Well, we've been doing creating such tools for the open source world to help all these different projects attract more users. Because the way we see it, and we call this like the open home, is that we want this your controller and all your devices to have like certain values about like data privacy and reliability. And a lot of the open source projects fit into this category, right? They provide firmware updates. You can get people are fixing bugs all the time. And so, yeah, what, what we're working on is just to really kind of collect all the projects that make, you know, do-it-yourself smart home stuff and make it more accessible. And so we kind of like, you know, we've taken up the role as like the, the product manager in a way where we come in and a lot of these projects, of course, like you can just come in and say, hey, you should improve that. Except that a lot of these projects, they also use Home Assistant. So they respect me and they respect my opinion. So when we come and say, hey, we have made some tools. And actually, here's an example of these tools. They're more likely to adopt it. And so we've seen actually a great adoption of like making just all these different pieces of software more accessible to the users. I mean, and there's an interesting thing about everything, like your entire approach, the idea that, hey, rather than just support this thing that only works in Home Assistant, you're having people build Python libraries to make their integrations work. Like, that's contributing to the larger community, not just the Home Assistant community, which I, I actually really love. I think that gives you a lot of weight in the community when you come in and say, hey, we have some ideas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The way I see it is that, like, you know, it is just... We exist to serve our users, right? There's no investors. So we just, you know, we just are constantly building and innovating on the stuff that our users want. And so, you know, if they are using Home Assistant and they want more cool projects to work with Home Assistant, well, then that's what we're going to make uh, available. Hey, I mean, what's the biggest thing that's changed for you since you started on this almost like 10 years ago? So I think that the, the biggest thing that changed is that when I started with home automation and started with Home Assistant, and you know, I, I didn't start actually to become a home automation platform builder, right? I was just like hacking for fun at home. But what happened is that both Google and Amazon released their voice assistants and they put everything in the cloud. They didn't respect any API or protocol. Instead, they were like, this is our platform if you want to integrate with us good luck and we're going to store everything in our cloud and everything is locked down it's like a one-way street so we you know we cannot get data out not even like you know as a vendor you couldn't even get the data you send out to google back out so it's like all of a sudden google or amazon were the only places that you know you can offer home automation and so you cannot do automation you cannot do history whatever features they decide that's it and of course that is really annoying because they have a very fairly limited team, their use cases are, you know, they need to target the whole world, right? So they need to, they make very basic use cases. They don't want to like uh, solve the complicated cases. So by the time, I mean, this kind of happened around like four years ago, I realized that with Home Assistant, we were in a place where, well, we have all the data local. We integrate with all these different services and even more than Google does. And that should be our focus point. Like we need to make sure that there's like a solution where all your data stays local. You don't have to share it with anyone to, you know, run your house. And the other thing that's happened, it seems like, is that everything's gotten better. I don't know how much you were into this before, but I feel like the Hue was a real turning point in terms of like hardware capability and reliability. Because before that, there was like this whole world of X10 stuff that was kind of a, a joke. Like I was a tech journalist then. I was reviewing stuff for magazines. 
and we kind of looked at it as, oh, yeah, this is for people who are kind of crazy, but not something you would actually put in your house because everyone that one that lives with you would murder you. And now <laughs> the people that live in the house with me are the ones that are the fans of the home automation stuff. It turns out. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that you know Philips did a good job with like accessibility of this stuff. It's like you buy this one package. And it has three light bulbs, a hub. It was super expensive, right? Super it's like expensive. $220 or something. But it worked, right? You, all of a sudden, you had an app on your phone and you could control your lights. And that was like really, really cool. And before that, with X10, you always had to pair things. Like it was complicated. It was basically because it was like too decentralized, right? Like Philips had a nice hub. And so you had like a central place where everything connected. And nowadays, what happened is that a few years later, this chip came out, the ESP8266, which is like a chip by Espressive, a Chinese company. And it was Arduino compatible, but it had Wi-Fi in it. And it was $2. Wow. So all of a sudden, this really started this whole wave of all these IoT gadgets having Wi-Fi because this was cheap enough to put actually in a light bulb. And by the way, $2 is the like dev board price if you order from AliExpress, right? If you buy this on a reel, it's like, you know, cents. Yeah. And so... Yeah, all of a sudden we have all these like products coming out of China. And like, I mean, there's also Western companies doing this, but a lot of them were China based that have like Wi Fi, they have APIs or they have clouds. And all of a sudden there's like a gadget for everything you can think of. Everything is becoming connected and the bar became really lower to get connected devices. And then I, I think, you know, Apple, Google, Amazon, they have been continuing to invest in it, trying to like popularize it. And so that also helped a lot. These days, you integrate devices from, you know, everybody from like Belkin, who just makes smart plugs and power strips all the way up to, like you said, Apple, Google, like the biggest tech companies on the planet. Do you have any communication with any of those vendors at all? Uh, yeah, no, definitely. A lot. Sometimes the communication only kind of start up after like they've been in the news in a poor way, like they, <laughs> <laughs> like they, you know, like they accidentally turn off their local, not accidentally, they turn off a local API that was like for diagnostics that we were using. And then all of a sudden... They're like, oh, Home Assistant exists. No, there are companies like, I mean, I have pretty good contact with Google, for example. They are like very interested in what we do. And we also unlock a lot of use cases for their customers, right? So basically when you kind of outgrow Google, you can use Home Assistant. I mean, a common example they always give where they suggest Home Assistant is that with Google and Philips U directly, you can only use one hub. And with Home Assistant, you can connect two hubs. Right, so that's uh, they, they're really happy because like their adoption of their platform hasn't always been like as much as they wanted, right? Like newer products, yes, but people don't just throw away everything in their house. They have all these existing products and they want to integrate everything. And so they see Home Assistant as offering that bridge uh, for them. That was exactly my path. You know, I started out with a Smart Things hub that I bought off Kickstarter, right? And it's <laughs> like, oh, this looks cool. I'll try out this new thing. And I got to a point where the business cases for smart things like, hey, we need to make this easy to set up and we need to make it fast and simple and and something that somebody that doesn't know how to even write a kind of basic script can manage. And then I got to the point where I was like, oh, I, would, I want to do some if loops. I wanted conditional statements, basically, in my automations. Right. If three people are at home, then do this. And if one person's at home, do this and, and all that. And a home assistant makes that stuff relatively straightforward. The, I mean, it was a little harder back then, but now, now it's a pretty straightforward process. Yeah. And, how do you balance the needs of the people that know how to write the scripts and that stuff versus, I mean, you have hardware coming this year. You know, how do I, I bought a Home Assistant Yellow and I just want to make this work because I care about data privacy. Right. So the nice approach, and this is kind of like part of like the open source world, this is how we started, is that like we don't 
care about the business case, right? If you care about the business case, you're going to lock down all your APIs because you don't want people to access to your data because maybe you want to add a new feature and, you know, monetize that. And if somebody else already built it, you cannot monetize it. We don't have that constraint. We just, Home Assistant is open and has an API. So what has started to happen is that a lot of people or like, well, a lot. There's like four or five projects out there that are offering their own automation engine on top of Home Assistant. And some of them is, for example, Node-RED. If you like dragging notes and lines, you can use that. There is a more Python-centric ones called PyScript or AppDemon, where basically you're writing Python scripts that hook into Home Assistant and can uh, leverage the triggers. There's, some, there's even a .NET, I think, automation engine that people wrote. And basically, it allows us to very easily say no. So when a new feature comes into Home Assistant that makes it super complicated, we can say no, and we know that there's a way out for them to still either accomplish this feature with another program or build something themselves. So also when you look at Home Assistant, every layer is pluggable and extensible, and a bit like Android is in a way, right? Like the core Android, you can plug in your own keyboard, you can plug in your own like whatever provider, and then you can customize it. And it's the same with Home Assistant. So you don't need to use our front end. You could build your complete own front end. But you can also, if you don't like our cards, you can plug in cards just into our front end, into your dashboard. And so every layer, you can just customize it so we can say no. So at this point, because the weird thing about Home Assistant, even from an open source standpoint, is that like there's this core, there's the OS, there's the core software, the core scripts, and then there's this massive community and ecosystem of integrations for you, where does core Home Assistant end and where does that community start, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's kind of not like a, a fixed line because some core integrations we do maintain because we think it's very important because they're very popular brands or products. Like, for example, Philips Hue, we actually make sure that we work uh, with the community member that's implementing it to make sure it's done right. Z-Wave is another example where we're spending a lot of resources and getting it right. We're doing a lot of work on the new Matter standard. But certain... I know you mentioned X10, for example. Well, there's an X10 integration in Home Assistant. Well, I couldn't care less. So like there are people, right, that are maintaining that stuff and that's great. And we can, we will still review their changes to Home Assistant X10 integration so that we make sure that it works. But we're not gonna go out of our way to like look for bugs, find bugs, clean it up, these kind of things. So when you're making those determinations, is it just looking at, because I mean, if you choose to opt in, Right. You can report yeah. back your numbers and it gives you an idea of what's popular and what's not. Is it all just, hey, a bazillion people are using the Alexa integration or is it, are you going to push the community and the ecosystem in the direction that you want it to go? I think it's a, it's a mix of both. Like, I mean, we look at analytics and we definitely, that's important for us. But we, you know, sometimes we see an integration where we wish it was more popular, right? And then we are going to like push and make sure like it gets like the support it deserves. For example, Later this month, on June 16, we're going to talk about this new way of doing music. And that's actually like a custom integration, not even part of Home Assistant. But we have been facilitating and helping it build out foundation in Home Assistant so it can plug in better, so it can easier like play music to all the media players in Home Assistant. Well, that sounds fabulous. That, 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 is, a, that, is, a problem, that is a difficult thing to do right now. <laughs> yeah. I guess at a high level, it's kind of complicated when you come into Home Assistant, right? Because you have four different ways you can install it. You have 
the core, you have the OS, you have the main Home Assistant application that you match the restart button, and, and that takes like two minutes. Sometimes you restart it and it takes 10 minutes. It's kind of unclear what's different. Can you kind of give a rundown for people who may be unfamiliar with the project? Like, right, yeah. So, low level to high? By, so, Home Assistant started out as a Python application. So, it was just an, you know, an application. I told people to just pip install it, and then, which is the Python package manager, and then run it. But the problem is that every integration has its own Python dependencies because the way we work with Home Assistant is that we do not allow protocol-specific information inside Home Assistant. All those things need to be in Python libraries. And we do that to kind of foster an IoT ecosystem that is not tied to Home Assistant. So, for example, if you want to control Chromecast but don't want to use Home Assistant, you can actually use the Py Chromecast library directly without relying on Home Assistant. And so... That means that every integration comes with a Python dependency. And we have over a thousand integrations. So, well, there's a thousand packages right there. So when people start to run just purely like a Python, like Home Assistant installation, they have to install and maintain those packages. There will be conflicts. There will be, it will take a long time. But then Docker came around. And Docker came around and allows us to ship containers. Well, containers are great because we can build a container that has all the packages installed. You just run the container and you're up and running. But the problem with the Docker container is that you now need to tell your Docker container manager or whatever, however you run it to start it up, to restart it. If you want to do an update, you have to change the version number. And so we realized we need another layer around it. And so that's our operating system. But our operating system is really only a bare minimum operating system to run Docker and run like the Bluetooth stack and audio stack, just to, but all make it just available to Home Assistant. And then we realized that our operating system is very good in running containers for just Home Assistant. So we also allow to install add-ons. And add-ons are actually packaged up other applications. For example, Samba, so you can like use a network share to edit your configuration in Home Assistant. Visual Studio Code is an add-on, so you can actually edit your configuration, embed it in the Home Assistant UI. All those automation engines I was just talking about, they can all just be one-click installed and run next to Home Assistant inside your operating system. But also, what we started realizing is that not all the best drivers for home automation stuff are written in Python. So, for example, Z-Wave, the best Z-Wave driver is called Z-Wave.js. Well, that is, as you can guess from the name, is JavaScript. Mm -hmm. So now we run that in a Docker container, and Home Assistant connects over WebSockets to it to integrate it. And so from all our installation methods, nowadays we just say, Basically, use operating system because then we can automatically install these add-ons and set up Z-Wave for you. We can offer updates, rollbacks if the update fails, these kind of things. So I am still a proud Home Assistant 4 <laughs> user. I do still just pip install right. the thing. But I mean, my, my use case is relatively simple. But do you ever see a situation going forward where Home Assistant Core and manual installations are deprecated as the project gets bigger and more complex? Or do you always intend to support that kind of manual pathway in? No, Core will definitely stay. I mean, that's also how we develop, right? It's just like when I run Home Assistant locally, like when for doing development, it's just a Python application. And in the end, inside the container, it is a Python application. I mean, it's gonna, is it gonna be more tricky to install? I mean, I think so. Cryptography, which is one of the dependencies that like, for example, Python depends on, nowadays requires Rust. So all of a sudden people want to install Home Assistant, either need Rust or they need to have a supported like compiled version already on the PyPI package server. So, it, it, you know, it is going to stay around for sure. It is like a maintenance task that you put on yourself and, you know, but that's a choice and that's, that's fine for me. And at the core level, 
if you, it, you know, if you just want to get started, you buy a Raspberry Pi three or four, put an SD card in with the Home Assistant OS build on it, and it just kind of works. Yeah, correct. And you know, you can actually install the OS also in a virtual machine. So some people just have a server at home. And I always suggest like use a VM instead of the Docker container because then you have all the updates and all that stuff just going for you. So you founded Nabucasa, I believe, in 2018, yeah, right? Yeah, correct. To kind of back and monetize the project. What are the challenges of continuing to maintain a very large, sprawling, <laughs> free and open source project with, you know, a kind of corporate entity that generates revenue on the back end? Or is it tough to balance the needs of those two things? It's actually not that tough because, so let me just start. Nabucasa is the company I started to help fund development of Home Assistant. This was five years into Home Assistant and it was already a big, like I was doing it before I went to work, after I came home from work, the weekends, it was all just like code review, trying to like plan the next steps. And, you know, if you have a day job, it's just very difficult to just kind of like, let's sit down for two hours and just think about where is this going to go? How is this feature need to be architected or like what is going to be maintainable while also dealing with all the stuff that the community brings on, like moderation issues and forums and like, you know, our servers need to like, people need to go to a website, need to be documentation. And so I realized like something had to change, but, you know, you cannot just take an open source project and then just say, now this feature that you know would always work for you, now you gotta pay for it. So that's not that was not gonna fly. So I looked at it and we saw that like a big challenge, like you know, home assistant itself was getting easier, but to actually access it while you're away from home was difficult. You had to configure a port on your router that port forwarded to home assistant, an SSL certificate, dynamic DNS, and it was very challenging. So we realized like, well, that's an opportunity. We can actually offer end-to-end encrypted remote connections into your home assistant instance for like a $5 a month fee. And then people don't have to deal with that maintenance. And it's interesting because the people that are very capable of doing this stuff, they also know they don't want to maintain it, right? So in the end, what we saw is that a lot of people just started paying for it enough that like today we have 16 people employed that are working all full-time on Home Assistant. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. And like there's no investors. It was completely bootstrapped. And this is very important for me because, you know, we're a privacy-focused company and I feel that if you take on investors, they want return on investment. And if that return is not big enough, they will push you to do things that are generally not in line with privacy. And so, you know, there's only a few entities in the world, I feel like, that are able to, like, pull this off. And, you know, Mozilla, for example, comes to mind. I mean, they are obviously way larger than us, but it is like important like to build out this privacy without ever anyone having control over our destination. Adding convenience is a really key thing. Like I had this exact experience you described. I was like, oh, I can set all this stuff up. I set it all up. And then a couple of months later, it stopped working. I was like, you know what? My time is worth $5 a month to not have to fool with this anymore. I absolutely love this. I think everybody who's used Home Assistant probably has one integration that just is the one that haunts them. Like Google Nest is the one that comes to mind for me because it's kind of <laughs> constantly a pain is there temptation to pull other kind of difficult integrations into the Nabucasa offering, or are you pretty so set we, with where you're at? I would say that 90% of the work that the engineers are doing at Nabucasa, or maybe even 95%, is working on open source. So all the stuff that we're doing is all open. Things like the Nest integration, like we, you know, I talk to Google and I we like we try to get account linking set up, like you know, as a partner, a Nabucasa partner. And for some companies, it works. For Google, it didn't work because the Raspberry Pi was not deemed secure enough to store your Nest token, for example. And they were like, well, that's not something we want to do because nowadays you can also access cameras over it, right? And that is like a 
pain point. So we actually are talking with Google because there might be an opportunity to store the tokens if we only allow thermostat access, but we haven't like explore that further. We're still talking to them about that. I mean, it's complicated, right? It is. It is. is the, yeah. I mean, like, for the people that are not familiar, it's literally, like, eight pages of, like, scrolling of, like, instructions, and you have to set up a Google Cloud console project and OAuth setup, and it's basically, you, you're doing the same setup as an enterprise partner <laughs> as an individual. It seems like hardware is an important part of that, too, right? Like, having a good, reliable hub for people who don't want to have, like, my Raspberry Pi is just screwed into the pegboard behind my <laughs> home lab in the garage. I, that's definitely not for everybody. You're now on your second rev of Home Assistant designed hardware? Yeah. yeah. So this is, uh, so when we look at Home Assistant, we've been making it easier and easier to get started like software-based. But the problem was still like buy a Raspberry Pi, flash an image to an SD card, and then like, you know, put the SD card into your Raspberry Pi, turn it on, find the IP address and get started. And basically when people hear like those words, they just like, they have no idea. So we realized that we needed something, right? We needed to have a hub that people could just buy and just get going. So we initially had a home assistant blue where we just made the case really for like an existing board. And then we came up with the second iteration now, which is the home assistant yellow, which is going to ship this summer. And that is based around a Raspberry Pi Compute Module 4. So this is like the brains of a Raspberry Pi without like all the ports. And then we made our own board around it. So it has a Zigbee module that is also compatible with Thread, so you can actually do matter with it. It has an M2 extension slot, so you can plug in an SSD in case you need more hard drive space, in case you're doing like, for example, Frigate, which is like a popular open source NVR system that works very well with Home Assistant. And, you know, you can swap out the compute module to make it if you want more power as well. So basically the, the Home Assistant Yellow is really, we've tried to create like a future-proof device that people can build upon for like a while to come, right? It shouldn't be like, oh, I'm running out of hard drive space. I'm going to throw away my hub and buy a new one. Like that's just not how we roll. Like that's not how we want our hardware in our home to work. And so that's also not how our hardware that we produce uh, should work. I love that you're supporting stuff like PoE and, you know, I think I saw that there's a Z-Wave module you can put into the headers on the board. And so, like, even inside the case that you're shipping, <laughs> you can upgrade this thing, which is rad. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we, we really built something that we want to use ourselves. You know, we just, like, we were hacking and playing with our homes all day, right? So we really, like, we know exactly what's, what we want. It sounds better than screwing the pie on the, on the pegboard in the garage. <laughs> yeah. You got any leads on compute modules? That's the big question I have. Is there a little hard to come by? It turns so, out. I mean, the, the website rpilocator.com does a good job. They scrape all the official resellers of uh, Raspberry Pi. And, you know, they've been coming here and there. I think I feel definitely like a thousand a week at least are being like coming on sale in the U.S., for example. But you need to either be there. I think DigiKey allows putting pre-orders in so you can like get one. Um, oh, nice. Yeah. But we're also, we are in directly touch with Raspberry Pi uh, directly. And so we are making sure that we sell Home Assistant Yellow, which has a compute module already pre-installed in the box. And there we have enough supply for those uh, right now. If you order the Home Assistant Yellow kit, then you have to bring your own compute module and then you can, you know, you have to source it yourself. I pre-ordered one of the kits and I'm pretty excited about it. It's fascinating launching a hardware project in the pandemic 
had to be pretty exciting, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, I mean, well, we've always been oh, completely distributed, right? So with Nabucasa, we are like Switzerland, Norway, Sweden, Netherlands, Germany, and California, and uh, Colorado, Boston, and Texas. So it's, it's all over the place. So we were, and our open source community is also all over the place. So it was definitely interesting. A lot of shipping around of like samples and these kind of things. Um, but a lot of times the samples come from China anyway, right? That's where our manufacturing is being done. So it, it doesn't add that much of delay, just more cost to kind of get everybody there. Just stuff and sourcing components and stuff like that is, is oh is, yeah I mean that's a whole mess yeah we uh, we had a lot of problems with that like we had picked some components and then we had made sure we bought like all the components with a longer lead time than the compute module four because of the price of the compute module four we couldn't pre-order those yeah but then like some of the components that had like a lead time of two weeks or three weeks all of a sudden became like sixty weeks and we're like ah uh, no so I think we're on our fourth or fifth redesign right now just like. <laughs> It, it's yeah. but part of the problem with the home automation stuff category in general is that you often don't know that you're going to hit those problems until you've already bought the thing and screwed it into your house and you're pretty committed at that point. I wonder if there's any thought to like rating the integrations or rating the devices so that people can come to you and say, "Oh, how's this going to work with my home assistant setup?" Yeah, we're actually working on making that easier. So we have like what we call the integration quality scale. So we just kind of judge like how well integration works. And we have, we already check like what we call the IoT class. So is it like local or cloud? And is it push or polling based? So local push is the, the best thing because it means if something happens, the device will locally let us know right away, right? Like polling means like every 10 seconds we'd be like, hey, is there an update to the lights? Is that, that's very annoying, causes a lot of traffic. We're, we're starting like with a works with home assistant program. So this program will allow companies to kind of like they have to commit that their qual- integration is a certain quality. Um, it can still be cloud based, but at least like, you know, the setup and onboarding has to work smooth. There needs to be no weird things like editing text file and editing your YAML configuration file or something like this. Going to some weird API page and figuring out what your <laughs> yeah. client ID is that's only, yeah. Setting up the topology for a home automation setup at this point is kind of, it can be really complicated, right? You can use your Alexa as a hub. You can use a smart things as a hub. You can use a wink thing as a hub. There's 50 million hubs and you can set all of them up to talk to each other. So what's the recommended path? Is it, you know, start with home assistant and then connect everything up to that and use that as the glue and then kind of blast that configuration back out to the voice endpoints and all that kind of stuff? Or is there a recommended configuration even? Um, well, I mean, that's definitely my recommendation and as <laughs> to use Home Assistant. And the, and the reason for that is that because we have open APIs, it means that you can export all the data to any of those systems that you want to integrate with. So with Home Assistant, you can control Home Assistant through Google or Amazon or Apple HomeKit, but you can also export it to like InfluxDB and graph it out with Grafana, for example. And if you use HomeKit or Amazon or Google, you cannot get that data out. The data is just in their system and you cannot access it. And so with Home Assistant, you have that freedom of like, we collect all the data and then you can just distribute it anywhere you want. So also, some people will just have scripts running to query their Home Assistant history or something and just, or like do something with that stuff, like in another program that they just custom write for whatever one-off use case. And that's possible too with Home Assistant and wouldn't work with you know, Amazon or something. 
Do you want to talk a little more about the Matter standard? I mean, your company has signed on as a contributor, but also, again, some of the biggest tech companies out there yeah. are also involved. You know, that's a standard to try to get everybody's stuff talking to everybody else's stuff. You want to expand a little more on what the importance of that is? Yeah, no. So we are actually super excited about Matter. Matter is a new smart home standard that is... Basically, you know, I, I described earlier how Google and Amazon were having their cloud-based platforms and then kind of nobody really signed up or not many enough people. Apple has, of course, Apple HomeKit, which does work locally, but it is only Apple devices can control it. So it's a very, very closed ecosystem. And so all of them kind of realized like, we need to create a base infrastructure for the home that doesn't suck. And then we can build on top and we can compete on that layer, but we shouldn't try to compete on all the layers. So what they're building with Matter, and it's it's really nicely done, is that it is a new smart home standard. It's being built by the Connectivity Standards Alliance. It's, the alliance used to be called Zigbee Alliance, but now that they have Matter, they rebrand it. And we are a member too with Nabucasa. And what's happening in this alliance is that there's actually an open source, like they're building this, standard, but they're also building an open source reference implementation. And this is, as far as I know, the first smart home standard that has an open source reference implementation where companies are really investing, like putting engineering time in to make something that benefits everybody. So for example, we integrated Matter. Now we have a prototype running based on all the code that like Google and Apple and uh, Silicon Labs or whatever all have written. Well, for example, with Z-Wave, that's all done by open source contributors. The Z-Wave Alliance is not involved, which makes it very hard to adopt it. So this open source reference implementation is also going to make it very easy for, uh, it doesn't contain just the controller side, but also what you run on devices. So for example, the, the firmware for a light bulb is already open source available on their GitHub. So basically, if you are a manufacturer of light bulbs, instead of having to build firmware, create an app, maintain a cloud, what are you going to do? You're just going to download that firmware from the Matter GitHub, put it on your light bulb, and now all of a sudden you're selling a light bulb that's going to work with Apple and Google and Amazon and Home Assistant. So what I expect to happen is that it will really commoditize just light bulbs and switches and just these very basic devices. Now, of course, the Matter standard is very limited, right? It, it, like Special features are not stored in the standard. So you know, turning a light, turning brightness is fine. But if you want to have like some fancy effects based on like what's displaying on your TV, well, that might not be part of the matter standard itself. You might, you know, still allow, require users to have like a custom app. So where I think that if we look at light bulb manufacturers today, the Ikea and the Leviton, they will create matter lights that are great, are going to be affordable and everybody can use it. And then Philips U or Nanoleaf, they will build lights with like advanced features like on the high end. And I think in between, there's not going to be much. But for us users, it will be great because we're going to have a lot of cheap quality light bulbs available that will work in our smart home. And another thing about Matter that really excites me is that it's not just a standard about how, for example, Home Assistant talks to your light bulb. It is also includes how to get your light bulb onto the network so that Home Assistant can talk to it. So it has a Bluetooth commissioning standard, which means that you know a light bulb turns on and I can scan a QR code and it gets added to the whole network and set up and it will work. And this commissioning has always been a pain for like everything, right? Like how do you get your new switch or your new light bulb set up? There was this GE 
a video how to reset a light bulb a couple of years ago where you had to like turn it on for four seconds, turn it off for two seconds, turn it on for four seconds, turn it off for eight seconds, just to get like a factory reset going. I have one of those bulbs. It's, it, it, was, it was literally not a joke. I, I, when this stuff was all new, we tested a ton of hardware. So I have like one of everything. They're all spread around the house. And it's a nightmare because like to reset the hallway light when the Zigbee stack blows up, you have to, it's one second on, two seconds off, one second on, two seconds off, one, six times. And like th- that was the thing that made me most excited about Matter, I think, was, hey, we're going to unify the way you connect things and we're going to make it more straightforward to get this kind of basic stack of things working, which, which yeah. seems really exciting. So, yeah. I mean, there's the old XKCD about how you end up with more standards, <laughs> which yes. it seems like the relevant parties are all talking here, though. Like, you feel like there's realistic chance that this is going to improve things, it sounds like? I think it's going to improve things. I think the, the one kind of challenge that people are, when I talk to like embedded developers, is that the stack is pretty heavy, for what we run on like a light bulb, for example. Like it's a lot of code that needs to run. Now chips are getting really cheap. So I, I think that will is a problem that will like solve it itself, where like things will get cheaper, things will get more efficient. The other thing, I mean, matter is not done yet, right? Like right now it's just still on the, it uses the same radio as for example, Zigbee. So it's on the 2.4 gigahertz band. Well, we all know that's kind of busy with Bluetooth on it and your Wi-Fi, uh, the old Wi-Fi stuff on it. So. I think there, there's probably going to be exploration into other gigahertz standards. But the beauty of Matter is that it actually doesn't matter <laughs> what kind of underlying standards is being used. So, for example, Matter works with any IP-based stack. So IP addresses is what you get when you connect to your Wi-Fi network. But an IP address is also what you get when you connect to a Thread network. So Thread is a meshing standard that Matter uses. But for Matter... Matter is agnostic to that. Matter just, you know, I'm just sending a package to a device and I get a response back. And in between sits like a thread border router, which is doing the translation for you. And thread border routers, I think Samsung already said that they're going to put thread border routers into every product that has a Wi-Fi chip, which is like their fridges, their washing machines, their TVs will all become like thread border routers. So, you know, you're going to have a strong mesh-based network to support your Matter stack. Because, I mean, it seems like that's the problem, at least in my Zigbee implementation. There's only a limited number of routers on the mesh. And if they get too far away from each other or if, like, somebody stands in the wrong place for too long, (laughs) the stuff downstream from those, there's not enough routers to mesh around the interference, I guess, is the challenge. So having more of those in the world seems good. Do you think, like, is Matter going to realistically help me with my Nest, like, getting my Nest camera output on my Home Assistant dashboard, though? Is that, like... No, it's, so it's too low level, right? Yeah, so cameras are not part of it yet. I also, you know, the under the banner of privacy, a lot of companies are like kind of shying away of getting like people access to the camera feeds, right? So we don't always have access. We do have access to the Nest one, by the way. We, you know, if you go through that whole complicated setup, that is. Um, it's magic. So, just so you, when it works, it's <laughs> ma- it's like really yes. exciting because like it, it's just on your dashboard and you see with the front door. It's amazing. Yeah. So I think Matter might not have a solution for that right away uh, for cameras. Maybe in the future they will. But for example, what we saw with HomeKit is that they have camera support, but it uses this codec that you can't really, there's an open source version, but we're not allowed to distribute it. And so it's it, it gets a bit complicated, but I think we all that stuff is solvable. So I think that once there is a proper open standard, it might just work as well. Do you think it's extensible enough that people will continue to build on top of this first version that's coming out later this year? 
Uh, it's hard to say. I think that, I mean, Matter has support for like vendor extensions. So basically you could create a light bulb that has extra clusters that like only your app will understand. And then of course, in Home Assistant will add support as well. But, you know, I think people will continue to build on it. If they ship a device with Matter, it wouldn't make much sense to add a cloud to it as well, right? Because then you're doing, you know, you're still having an ongoing cost for a device you sold like years ago or something. It seems like an open standard is arriving just in time, right? Because you just recently had the nightmare scenario with the Insteon products and Smart Labs, <laughs> yeah. the, the, the manufacturer, going out of business. And that, you know, essentially has the potential to brick the devices that people own when it's a closed system that, you know, the people who run the closed system no yeah. longer exist, right? So was it tough to maintain support for that stuff now that the corporate parent there is out of the picture? Uh, yeah, the Insteon stuff was very interesting because it actually works local except that their hub didn't work local. And the app could only talk to the hub through the cloud, even if you were connected to the same network. And so when the corporate entity was gone, the app didn't work. So you couldn't change schedules anymore. So you couldn't like control lights, the Google integration, Amazon integration didn't work. But as long as these hubs are working, Home Assistant can still talk to it. Now, Insteon did this I mean, this is the old school like X10 kind of stuff, right? It, it goes over the power. So it goes over your electricity network. So the big problem there is that if your modem dies, nobody's making new modems. So I would advise anyone on Insteon to really just like migrate because there's no future there. You know, once your modem dies, either the standalone modem or the modem in the hub, you're out of luck. Are there any other product lines out there that you're especially concerned about being too locked down? Like I've got a couple of nice Sonos speakers, but their onboarding commissioning process for those speakers is so tightly integrated to their app. Like you can't even get them onto your Wi-Fi without their cloud connected app. And I occasionally poke around at the efforts to create an open source version of their firmware, which don't seem like they've gotten very far. Is there, is there anything like that out there that concerns you? Like Sonos is probably not going away tomorrow, but you know, like... Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, Sonos, yeah. If, if Sonos would go away, then your speakers are just dead, right? Like Right, and those are expensive speakers. Yeah, no, this is the problem where like, once you link up the smartness of like being able to receive the audio stream the and the speaker itself, then all of a sudden it is one package that can go if the manufacturer goes. I think that... Things like Lutron, like, I mean, Lutron is not going to go away. They're too, like, ingrained in, like, also the professional smart home. But it's one of those close standards that a lot of people have that, you know, when matter is there, why would you get, like, Lutron stuff, right? Like, sure, the Lutron stuff today has higher quality of, like, you know, the connection is very reliable and that kind of stuff. But matter will catch up because more people are going to buy matter stuff, I think. Yeah, but I think in, in the end, like, for example, Lutron, they're very, like, anti like opening the APIs to us. They just, they're not interested in it. And they are, we've talked to them in the past and it was like just dead end or ghosted or these kind of things. But yeah, if I think of other companies that are like, I mean, I, I just feel that for example, any manufacturer that today brings out, for example, like cloud-based light bulbs, Tuya is a good example. Well, once Matter comes out, then, you know, they realize they don't need a cloud for the newer products. And then there are just ongoing cloud costs to pay for like a light bulb that you that they sold like a couple of years ago. And then I can see them definitely turning off the cloud for that. Yeah. So, I mean, generally I am wary of anything cloud-based. It has no ongoing payments to kind of support it, right? So for example, with Home Assistant Cloud, you pay monthly, so you know that there's income to maintain that cloud. But if you buy any product 
that has ongoing costs, like why would they pay for you? Like why, how many years do they has been built into the product? You're buying a light bulb that's going to last 10 or 12 years. Like, <laughs> yeah. how are they funding the servers for 12? It's, it's a, I mean, the question is always, if you're not paying for something, are you the product or are you the customer? And, and I'd, I'd rather right. be the customer yeah. generally. It seems like for a minute, and maybe this minute is still going, that companies who are building this hardware were just building cloud solutions for no apparent reason. You know, there's, yeah, like, well, I don't know why my Lutron switches have a hub that connects to the cloud, <laughs> but they do for some reason. And like, realistically, is Lutron getting anything out of that? I mean, they're collecting a tiny bit of data from me about when my kitchen lights are on. But beyond that, it seems like just overhead for them to maintain that is completely unnecessary from a user and business perspective. I'm curious if you're like, do you have insight into that? Or do you think it's just like some CTO, some CMO someplace was like, hey, what's our cloud strategy at company X? And they were like, oh, here we go. We're going to, you know. Well, yeah, the way I assume it always works is that you know, people will have an app to control the lights, for example. And then once you're out of your Wi-Fi network, well, when you're not at home, you still want the app to work, for example. And so then, you know, a CTO might say, okay, we need a cloud connection. And once you have a cloud connection and you're like, why would you maintain a second API that is a duplicate? No, you can just always use the cloud. So let's always have our app go through the cloud. Now, there's one manufacturer that actually decided not to do that approach, and that's IKEA. So IKEA for their first hub, and like they just announced a second hub that might have remote access, but their first hub, the only remote access you could get is to connect it to Google or Amazon. You could, there were, the IKEA app just didn't work when you were outside of your network. That's kind of a very utilitarian approach that I kind of approve. That sounds pretty good to me. Oh, yeah. Philips U, for example, is kind of, they have this dual approach where they have a local API and they have a cloud API. And then Philips is one of the few companies that I know that is actually clear about that, hey, there's limited cloud support. So you can expect, I think, three or five years after you purchase this through like an approved reseller that your device will work with the cloud. And after that, it might or might not be. So they actually did sunset their V1 hub at some point uh, because it was just not powerful anymore. Yeah, and then the V1 hub still works with Home Assistant because of the local API. I still use a V1 hub because of the local API here. And what about on the data side? Are you all Alexa up or are you... Uh... So on the data side, like, for example, I don't have any cameras facing inwards into my house. So I only have, like, a garage. Uh, in the garage door, I have a camera. I don't have a front doorbell camera just because I couldn't position it in a way that I couldn't... Otherwise, I would, like, uh, record the neighbors entering and leaving their house, mm. which I don't think was uh, cool. I have a Google setup, a Google Mini that I just use for a shopping list, uh, music, and uh, I, I have a HomePod and a Amazon, but those are mainly for development. And then it's funny because, like, I don't have, you know, HomePod doesn't work with Spotify. It only works with uh, Apple Music, and the only Apple Music song I have is this U2 song of, like, <laughs> whatever. I think that's all of us. Yeah, and so like my daughter will like you know hit the top of it, and all of a sudden U two is playing again in the living room. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious what your home setup is like, like just a little bit. Uh, how automated is your house? Um, so my house is not as automated as one would expect from like the founder of a home automation system. We rent here. I'm on the on the UC Irvine campus. Uh, we're living in staff housing, and um, I mean, we do have like the, we have a MyQ garage door and a Honeywell thermostat, and they're all integrated. My main thing, the way I use Home Assistant, is to actually entertain my kids. 
So I have a bunch of stuff that like, I have buttons that will play music. I made like an emergency button that they can like press. I use a lot of NFC cards. So I have like an NFC tech reader and different cards with different pictures on it that will all play songs on like my Sonos sound system, for example. And the kids, even since they've been one year old, know what is on those pictures, on, like know which song will play and they'll have their favorite songs and they can just tap it and it will play, for example, in the living room. And the songs are short enough to not be very annoying. <laughs> and so, you know, that's the kind of stuff I've been always like, you know, entertaining the kids is like one thing that I like a lot. Gamify the house. That sounds fun. Mm -hmm. I'm going to steal an example from Will here, but we live in Northern California and a couple of years ago when the wildfires were terrible. He rigged up a, a colored light bulb that could change colors based on the air quality outside. What are some like really novel applications or automations you've seen in the community? Like, are there any really unusual or just extra complex automations that you've seen out there that have caught your attention? Ooh, let me uh, think. I mean, like, well, the, the one I just saw like a couple of weeks ago is that somebody had like chickens and they were like weighing the eggs of their chickens each morning and then they would like know which chicken to attribute the egg to and they would like keep track of like you know, the production of each chicken and stuff. But I think, you know, it's when it comes to automations, it's really the more complicated stuff is usually very difficult to maintain. There will be tons of edge cases. You know, the, the best automations are the ones that are never annoying and never have like false positives where they fire while they shouldn't. The things I love the most, and I have this in my home, is just turn on the lights when it gets dark. Yeah. But it's a, it's a very simple one, but it's really nice because, you know, you want to do that anyway. I have, for example, also here, my, my camera lightning will automatically go on when I start streaming because, like, my Mac is integrated into Home Assistant. And these are just, it's kind of conveniences everywhere. Like, I know people have, like, these, like, I'm in a meeting light bulbs outside of their door, for example, so that people will can easily see, you know, they're in a meeting, I should not disturb. I'm always a big fan of these kind of just convenience-based automations. I don't believe in like, you know, for example, dimming the lights in the living room when I start watching a movie, well, that's one that's bound to go wrong, right? Somebody might be like reading a book and now the lights are being dimmed, these kind of things. But, you know, the, the, the other smartness that I like is, for example, people will have set up their lights that if they turn on the kitchen lights at night, it will be 20% brightness because they don't want to like, you know, have too much bright light in their eyes, but during the day it will be 80%. So that when the kid wakes up, you need something from the kitchen, you know, you don't get too much light in your uh, in your face. I was going to say, the, the thing that sold my wife on it, I think, was when we had a young baby and you'd come from the bathroom into the bedroom with a wet, tiny child, <laughs> a bunch of towels, no hands-free, carrying a ton of stuff and clothes and the whole thing. And you walked into the bedroom, the lights just turned on. And that was magic. Now, in reality, like battery-based motion sensors that are hung up in the corner of your room, not really an optimal solution for a lot of reasons. But it seems like there's other stuff happening in the space, like the Bluetooth proximity sensors and the NFC tags and all that stuff is becoming more... The things that used to be hard are getting easier, which is really exciting, yeah. I think. Well, ultra-wideband is like the latest technology that people are really raving about, right? It's the, it's the stuff that Apple has in their Apple AirTags. Mm -hmm. And that's actually, you know, if you have a couple of those antennas through your house, you should be able to, like, track a lot of stuff. It's not there yet. There's still, like, companies working on it. But I, I think that's going to be, like, the next step. Just be able to see where stuff is in the house. That's exciting because getting rid of motion sensors would be a delight. I don't yeah. know anybody who likes motion sensors, I don't think. Is there stuff that you won't automate in your home, Paulus? Um, I mean, I have my garage door connected. I don't have smart locks, so I uh, 
I don't know. I think anything with like a stove or something, I wouldn't automate just because, you know, a, a false positive. Having the garage door open is okay. I can close it remotely. I get notifications if it's open for too long. But having a stove on is just dangerous because you don't know what's on it. My stove is a smart stove. And I was pleasantly surprised when I got it. Like, I didn't buy it because it was a smart stove. It was just with the one I wanted. It happened to have that stuff built in. And I was pleasantly surprised that, like, you had to actually press the buttons to prime it to turn on remotely and all that. Mm. So, like, some of the manufacturers, at least, are being thoughtful and smart about, you know, letting us burn down our houses. So that that's good. <laughs> I was going to ask you this, but I probably know the answer because I bet you're developing off of it. But how often do you update your Home Assistant install, the one that runs your house, not the dev one? Uh, no, the one that runs my house runs nightly. So every night. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, it's every morning I get up and I'll, I'll see if it still works. But the nightly is hardly ever fully broken. So sometimes like small bits are broken, but like not the, usually not the bits I use. Okay. Is there any technology that you're particularly excited about getting into Home Assistant that isn't there yet? Or is it just kind of burgeoning? You know, we did a big push for energy management and Home Assistant last year. And we realized there's not good hardware to read out your energy meter and push that information to Home Assistant. So we actually built two hardware projects based on like, you know, we created like the, the way it should work. We created like, we work with the community on working in firmware. And then we also had one community member who started selling this hardware. And we made sure that these projects, you know, when people launch it, like when they install this hardware at home, it will immediately be picked up by Home Assistant. The data gets flowing into Home Assistant. People can get firmware updates and all this stuff just works. And this is kind of something that, we don't just want to do it for energy management, but there will be other things. Like I saw today somebody who was like working on a heat pump to make that smarter, right? This is kind of stuff like, well, if we want to like, for example, be more energy efficient homes, we need to make sure we know how much electricity you use. We need to know when to turn on the heat pump and these kind of things. And so to be able to create locally running devices that automate that, that's kind of the things we're built to make that stuff easier to build. That's what we're working on. The energy in is really interesting because the things you're talking about are, are these devices that you clamp onto the cable where the power comes into your house, right? Well, no, actually, we created like two other ones. So in Europe, there's a, a serial protocol called P1. So every energy meter has a P1 port, which provides the current usage over serial, the cumulative usage, and it provides power to actually power a device that's plugged in. So the device that is now for sale is that you can plug it into your power meter. It gets turned on through the serial port and it gets all the data pushed into Home Assistant. Oh, that's fabulous. The other device is, we call it Home Assistant Glow. So a lot of energy meters have like an LED that will pulse based on how much kilowatt hour is being used. So I think they pulse like a thousand times per kilowatt hour. Now, if you keep track of those pulses, you will actually know how much energy is being used in your house. And you can convert that into numbers and then we push it to Home Assistant. Oh, neat. And then once you have that information about what energy is being used, you can know what you need to turn on and off, make informed decisions. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And those, those clamps that you were talking about, they are great to also monitor this, but you will need like an electrician to really set it up because it can get like, you know, you're putting electricity on electricity around it. Yeah. But it will give you more insight into each breaker group you could start measuring, which is also really cool. I'd love to talk about kind of the like growth. Like, where do you feel like we are in the Gartner hype cycle for home automation <laughs> stuff? Like, are we into the good part of the curve now or are we going down the cliff? I, you know, I think it's still growing. And I think also with Matter, more people will actually start to benefit from smart home technology, where I feel a lot of times 
in the past, like once I got my first Philips Hue lights, all of a sudden I could only turn on the light using my phone. And that was actually a step back, right? I only realized it later. It's like, oh, you know, when I enter a room, hitting the light switch always has to, is always faster than taking out my phone, opening an app and these kind of things. So I think that a lot of people have been burned in the past with smart home stuff. And I hope, I mean, this is like a long stretch, but I think that if matter is accepted enough that we can start seeing like, you know, one manufacturer making a cool light switch, another makes a light bulb and all that stuff actually can get to work together. We can get to a point where, you know, the, the amount of people that will have smart home products will grow. Thanks so much to Paulus for coming by and talking to us about Home Assistant. It is a, a spectacular project, and I think everybody should check this out. Whether it's automating something tiny, like your coffee maker, or how your lights turn it on and off in a couple of rooms in your house, or going the whole house automation route, it is uh, truly like it's a miracle of modern software that it all works as well as it does. For sure. I was super excited to hear about all the matter stuff. I mean, you know, it's, it's probably going to take some months to years before the effects are truly felt at the end user level, you know, as, as standards tend to do, it'll probably move pretty slowly. But once it gets there, like the idea of a common standard that can underpin at least at a basic level, everything. Uh, it's, it's really I, I'm not going to lie. I ordered a Home Assistant Yellow kit after <laughs> this. So uh, I'm ready to go as soon as the hardware gets here this fall. And the matter stuff, I don't understand enough about how the radios and stuff work, how that all that underlying technology works to understand if matter was real deal or not, but if Paulus is excited about it, I think I am. Yeah, I, I may not have worked it in in the middle of that conversation, but like just the commissioning onto your Wi-Fi part yeah. is the worst part of smart home stuff to me. I mean, like we've got some TP-Link Casa stuff, we've got Belkin Wemo stuff, like we've got a bunch of different vendors making stuff in our house, you know, and every single one of them needs its own app that you have to sign up for an account for just to get it on your Wi-Fi. If I could just skip that step, if I could just put a thing on my damn Wi-Fi network, I'll be happy. I still think setting up the accounts is better than the light bulb <laughs> do -si do of one second on, two seconds off, which is different for every oh. vendor and even some different light bulbs within the same vendor class. So you don't like learning how to do light bulb Morse code? Uh, but if you want to find out more about Home Assistant, we did an episode a couple of years ago of the Tech Pod on this. I think it's episode 59. Mm -hmm. Correct. Which was from November of 2020? 2020, yes. I will link that episode in the show notes if you want to, to travel back in time a couple of years and hear what we were up to with Home Assistant then. That was right when I switched from SmartThings, which is a commercial platform that does something similar to Home Assistant. You can also go to their website. They have a great community forum at home-assistant.io. We'll link that in the show notes as well. And they give you everything, like all you need to get started is a Raspberry Pi and about 15 minutes. It, it's really easy to get up and running. But w when we talked about the power of the, the scripting and stuff like that, you can do really amazing things with Home Assistant. So that's going to do it for us this week. As always, the FossPod is brought to you by Google Open Source. They bring all the value of open source to Google and all the resources of Google to open source. You can find out more at source. Dot Google. Oh, nice. So he's a slightly different delivery that time. That's how you can tell that each one is bespoke. So you got to mix it up. We're doing free range podcasting over here. This isn't any factory <laughs> podcast. Yes. Farm, farm to ear. So we'll be back in a couple of weeks with more Foss Pod. As always, uh, if you like the show, please let us know. Uh, let us know what stuff you'd like us to talk about, too. Yeah. Like we're always interested in topics from the community. You can send emails to fosspod at content.town yes. or hit us on Twitter. We're uh, the FossPod, I think. Yeah, ideas are super welcome. We're kind of we're kind of firing on all cylinders now as far as lining up new guests and projects to cover and so forth. So if you've got 
projects you love, maintainers that you'd like to hear more from, any of that stuff, please send them our way. This week's episode is produced by Matt Purdy and edited by Sabrina Hill. Thanks to Matt and Sabrina for their work as always. And we will see you all in a couple of weeks. Bye.